The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the principal high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I should give you, the word of God. Please be seated. Mm, the word of God. Before we get started this morning, I want to send out an official apology uh, from my sermon last week to the, to the prestigious team of deans at the last year university dormitories. I may have mentioned that heaven was going to be like a bunch of rooms in a dorm, at which point I got this text. If we have the text, you can put it up from one of our deans, Pastor Icky. If heaven looks like Sierra Towers, and I have to spend my days in heaven as a dean, that is not heaven. <laughs> I apologize to our dean team. You all will get a mansion. The rest of us will be in dorm rooms. <laughs> and in heaven, the dorm rooms are going to look just like Sierra Towers. Thank you, Pastor Derek and Dean Cotts for your careful take of that place. We want to look at the story and character of Solomon today as we are revisiting this particular story in preparation for Vacation Bible School, one of the days that our kids will be experiencing. Solomon, I believe, in my heart, is a relatable character. He has uh, got his eyes on the injustices around him. He wants to adjudicate it according to what he thinks is right. He's vexed by it, but also he's trying to hold on to his valuable position in the world. He feels like this brings him value, and so he needs to keep holding on to all the things that create status for him. But also, he is someone who has to struggle with all his own personal demons and familial history. He's got a lot going on in his life. That sounds a little bit like us today, I think. Many of us are appalled by a lot of the injustices that we see happening about us, the lives that are endangered, the inequality. It bothers us. And also, we're trying to hold on to our status, to our, our jobs. We're trying to keep up with the Joneses. By the way, who are the Joneses? Can we let them go? Somebody say, let them go. Let them go. But hey, listen, everybody on our block's got a Tesla. We got to get a Tesla. Do we have to get a Tesla? We have to. We can't afford it. We can't afford not to. Constantly trying to stay up with the value system that we built for ourselves. And also, having to deal with our personal and familial junk. Everybody's got junk they've got to deal with. Our personal stuff. I think that Solomon is a very relatable character in our lives. Up to this point in 1 Kings, the first three chapters, Solomon has begun to pivot and take control of the situation. He's maneuvering and he's pivoting with piety. He's, call, uh, he's, he's called for assassinations. He's, um, he's, he's really put himself in the place of the mantle of kingship. 
He's done some pretty big things. As the heir to the throne, we already see his giftedness for decision-making and action-taking. Solomon is on the move, and he's in control. Parenthetically, in a strange and weird way, I feel that when I'm reading about these characters, Solomon, David, uh, Jonah, uh, Moses, there is this strange thing that happens in me when I watch these human beings who are broken and flawed be used by God, that it, it creates a sense of encouragement in my life. That even with their brokenness and their flaws, God still chose them to be on the team. Isn't that awesome? Because I, I don't know about you, but I look at my life and my flaws and my, and my brokenness and I say, God, why could you ever use someone like me? And God says, I absolutely want to use someone like you. And I think if God can use someone like me, God could use someone like you. Turn to someone and say, God could use you. Maybe this is what you'll stumble across this morning and this is the one thing you take. I want you to know, in your brokenness, in your flaws, wherever you may be, in your doubts, uh, in your journey, God wants you on his team. Nothing feels better than to be called onto the team. I grew up a, a, a somebody who didn't always get picked on the team. I don't know if you've ever been to that experience. When it came to football, everybody picked me first because I was a big kid. But when it came to sports that took speed, I was never picked. What a painful feeling to wait there and watch kids say, okay, I want you, and okay, I want you, and okay, I want you. Oh, I guess I'll take him. Ah. God doesn't look at us this way. We are his first round draft pick. He wants you in your brokenness, in your flaws, in our humanity. God says, you are who I want to use. As I look at Solomon's life, the assassinations and the pivoting and the, the things that he had to do and God still wanted to use him. I, I, it gives me a little bit of encouragement that that God would like to use me. And I pray that as you leave this place, you felt like God has purpose and calling for you as well. Back to our passage. So the leading question for me in this passage today is why did God come to Solomon in a dream? Why a dream, God? Why would you come to Solomon in such a method? The leading question for me here is interesting and it drives me because I just thought, man, you know, God would show up at the offerings, at the altar. When he does his thing, everybody uh, uh, is, is there, and they've gone through all of the different altered uh, gifts and offerings, and it goes up to heaven, and God should show up there. But God doesn't. God waits till all of the events and all of that stuff passes by. Then when he goes into his deep sleep, God visits in the dream. Now, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, Solomon is on the move. He's in control of the situation. He's got it all down. He's making the decisions. He's making the calls. He's sending out the help. And in fact, at the end of chapter 2, this is how the narrator ends chapter 2, verse 46. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. The hand, the hand is a phrase for power. So the kingdom was established by Solomon's power. You and I can begin to see that Solomon is a person of control. He's a person who wields this power and he begins to establish the, the, the common cultural normative for these people as a nation. Notice in chapter four, in verse four, that Solomon is the subject 
of the verb. He is the one who goes to Gibeon. He is the one who sacrifices. He is the one in control of doing the action and the verb so that God would respond. He is the one doing all of this. So why does God come to him in a dream? Well, God comes to the kings in dreams so that he could move the kings in order that they may change course for the sake of others. Abimelech, Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar. But here, again, we see God on the move. And just like God did with Adam in the book of Genesis, you remember when Pastor Devo had mentioned that, he put the man into a deep sleep so that the man wouldn't be caught up in any of the work that was being done for for Ezra. Here again, the man, the king, is in a sleep. In that state of sleep, Solomon does not get to control the moment. He is now a passenger and no longer is the subject of the action, but now he's the object of the action. So the subject changes. He is no longer in control. In verse 5, God appears in the dream. Who appears in the dream? God appears in the dream. God is the one who asks the questions. God is the one who gives to Solomon this question. Ask what I should give you. So you see here, there's a transition. The one who used to be in control up to this point, the one who was doing all the pulling of the levers and the mechanisms, the one who had control of all things, now must let go, and God is now the one who stands in the place of controlling again. We need to be in the place by which we are not in control, but God is in control. Robert Mulholland, from a little book called Invitation to a Journey, writes, Graspers powerfully resist being grasped by God. Manipulators highly reject being shaped by God. Controllers are inherently incapable of yielding control to God. Solomon was someone who was used to being in control. He was used to creating opportunities for himself. He was used to being the subject of the action. Up to this point, he was that person. And maybe Solomon had reasons for doing it. Maybe he needed to control all of the angles and all the perspectives because he felt like he had to, he had to uh, uh, catch up with his older half-brothers. Maybe it came out of a place of insecurity. Maybe it came from a place of wanting to, to have some sense of prestige. Maybe it came from a place of, of having a crazy family structure. Maybe, maybe he just felt like because in the world it's crazy, he wanted to control all things. What is our lives? And what in our lives do we try to control and keep out of the hands of God? What are we grasping for and pulling for that God says, I want it back? So God met him in this place where his efforts were at rest. Solomon couldn't do anything in a dream. He didn't get to control the dream. He wasn't the person of the subject to make things move and manipulate and change. He was only the passenger who came along in the dream. He was at rest and God was at work. We are at our best when we are at rest and God is at work. Oh, God is at the work now. This is what I love about being a Seventh-day Adventist. 
I love that we have this communal fellowship of Sabbath. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Turn to someone now and just say, happy Sabbath. All right, now turn it and act like you mean it this time. Go ahead. Say, happy Sabbath. Oh, that's powerful. The Sabbath is powerful. And maybe, maybe for our traditions, you know, as, as Adventists, we have maybe forgotten how to celebrate and, and use and, and live in a Sabbath, right? Maybe we've gotten a little bit caught up in some of our traditions. We grew up in that kind of household. I don't know what kind of Sabbath household you grew up in. We grew up in, a, in, a, in like a serious Sabbath household. When we said happy, we didn't mean happy. We meant you're dead if you smile. Right? That's the kind of Sabbath uh, we grew up in. My, uh, my family, my grandparents, who my, dad was, my grandfather was a pastor, cooked his food on Friday. Friday, not Sabbath. He, on Friday before noon. I don't know if you grew up in that kind of household. So by the time you ate it on Sabbath, it was cold food because we didn't cook on a Sabbath. So when we go to church, we'd be like, Lord, please let there be a potluck today. Lord, please. Please, man. Jesus. This is the kind of Sabbath we grew up. You know, you know what my parents used to do because, I don't know, because they're crazy probably. They used to take us to the beach, but not let us swim on the Sabbath. What kind of psychological damage are you doing to your kids? We're going to go to the beach where the only thing there is sand and ocean, and you can't touch the water. And they had this rule, right? Like, the water here was okay, but the water here was a sin. Mercy. So if you stood there and the water went out, you were safe. When it came in, you were sinning. Oh, mercy, Jesus. And every time they, I don't know, why would you take us on Sabbath? Because you know we couldn't go in. And it seemed like on Sabbath, that was the best time to be in the water. Kids were enjoying themselves. They were riding on dolphins. You know, we couldn't do that. We lived a tight Sabbath. We lived a Sabbath of scarcity. We live, live the Sabbath of oppression. But the Sabbath is something that's supposed to be beautiful. It's, it's supposed to be abundant. It's supposed to be full. It's, it's supposed to be disruptive and, and subversive to the world around us that says, you are a slave to your title. But on the Sabbath, we get to say, no, God is my master. I am, I am here because of him. It is, the, it is the beauty of a Sabbath that lets us reshift, rest, and remember that we don't have to be in control. Turn to someone and say, you're not in control. Careful of it's your spouse. This is what a Sabbath is, right? And it's beautiful. We ruin the Sabbath when we start the to-do and, and not allowed to do stuff list. That's not what a Sabbath is. The minute we start doing that, we've missed the meaning of a Sabbath. The Sabbath is salvific. Not because if I do things right, Jesus saves me. The Sabbath is salvific because it saves me from myself. I can stop. I don't have to be Mr. So-and-so. I don't have to be a banker. I don't, I don't have to be judged by my vehicle. I'm not picking on vehicles, by the way. If you have a nice vehicle and you have an extra one, I could use one. Praise the Lord. <laughs> the Sabbath is a reminder for us, master and slave, male and female, Gentile and Jew, that all are one in Jesus. There's rest there. 
And so Solomon was put into a Shabbat-like rest where he couldn't be in control of the world around him. And he had to be a passenger that was moved by God. And now he was in a place where he could live a responsive life to God. Jürgen Moltmann, Collected Readings, says this. God's coming unfolds a transforming power in the present. You know what that means? That's mind-blowing. That means every time God touches down, something is being changed. Every time God touches down in our life, in our situation, in our church, something is being changed. We are constantly being riveted and moved and shaped and formed by God, and that happens in our space of rest and allowing God to take control again. Oh, Jesus, take the wheel. Change is about. And then we can live lives in a response to God. Because we live in a world that is so full of stuff, and because we live in a world where we can control so much of that stuff, we become little Solomons. We can, we can order any kind of food we want at any time of the day. We can just pop on our phones and, 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 and Food Hub and, and uh, all these other things will bring food to us, whatever you want. My cousin, every so often, would just send us a truckload of cookies for no reason. And I had to text him and say, bro, I'm going to die of diabetes in a half an hour if you don't stop. Two in the morning, donuts from Randy's Donuts would just show up because we can do that. You can watch any show you choose to in entertainment, jump on your YouTube, on Netflix. You can watch Disney Plus. You can continue controlling your life around you as much as you want. And because this is our practice in our world today, it is difficult for us to release control and let God do the work again. And so he brings Solomon, who's used to being in control, who's holding his kingship down, his status. He's, he's doing all these things. He wants to bring justice to the land. He puts this Solomon into a rest place so that he can stop and let God be in control again. And God now is at work that we would live responsive lives. You know, your, your job at church is not to come to church, right? Your job as a church is to be the church. Now, please no one take that meaning, I don't want you to come back. I want you back next week. Every week, just show up and, and bring a friend with you, amen? Turn to somebody and say, bring a friend next time. Bring a friend, that's all right, bring a friend. I want you to be here, but the point of church isn't to just show up here. The point of church is to allow this magnificent God to touch down in our lives for transformation and then respond by living a life out from there. Oh, how marvelous and beautiful and wonderful that could look. When we are no longer the center of our world, when we release that space for God to be the center again, and then we come running along beside God to do as he bids. Wow. We can do this. We can do this, church? I think we can. Watch what happens to Solomon, the one who's used to being in authority, the one who's used to being in control. Verse eight, now listen to his tenor and his tone. And your servant, he says, is in the midst of the people whom you have chosen. 
a great people, so numerous they cannot be numbered or counted. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding to mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil, for who can govern this? Your great people. You recognize what happens here. Because Solomon was forced into rest and he's no longer in control, he recognizes that the one who is in control is the God of the universe. And so he then resigns to become the servant again. When you and I don't have to be our own God, we can then be released to live a life of a fellowshipper. We don't have to control everything. We don't have to know all the answers. Yes, the market is gonna tank. Yes, housing prices are crazy. Yes, we live in a crazy world with things happening right now that are unjust, but we don't have to figure it all out. God's got our back. We can come along and fellowship. And though Solomon falls short of all too often in his life, in this moment, he's living in response to God as he recognizes his place in the world. Solomon is neither a hero nor a villain. He's a human. That should remind all of us. There are moments in our lives where we will do good things and there are moments in our lives where we will fail greatly and in all of that, God still calls us to be a part of his plan. Where are we in control of our schedules, of our entertainment, of our homes, of our purchases? We need to retrieve the power of living in Jesus. Solomon's great fall here was that uh, he was enamored by his gift of discernment and wisdom and not so much enamored by staying near God. May we never be so celebrative of our own achievements and gifts that we lose our way from being close to God. He loves us in the thick of it. He comes to us in our brokenness and in our flaws because not only does he love us, but he wants to use us as we are. Uh, I'm gonna close. By the way, congratulations to the babies. Baby Jeffrey, baby Elliot. I love babies. Wife, no, okay. Amen. I'll tell you a little story about babies. Uh, <laughs> so let me tell you about how I learned um, when to start locking my doors in my house. This is a, this is a real thing. Parents will start giggling a little bit. They know how it goes. This is, so, my daughter started to, you know, started to waddle and walk a little bit, but we thought at that time it's still safe to leave our doors unlocked, no problems. You know, uh, she doesn't know how to open doors yet. So she'd kind of waddle around our little uh, condo and just, you know, when she'd get tired, she'd just fall and lean onto a door, you know, and she'd, and she'd lean there. And she'd walk around and she'd lean on another door. Well, we said, okay, we've got time. And, one day, I was spending time in the uh, throne of contemplation. <laughs> Some of y'all know where that's at. Men know where, exactly where that's at. I was there in deep thought and deep meditation while looking at Facebook. 
We have two doors to our bathroom because it's a small condo like a donut. And while my wife is the kind of individual that doesn't mind people moving in and out of her space while she's in the restroom, I am not that guy. Gentlemen, say amen. If you know, if you know what I'm talking about. You know, I like to lock my doors. I don't, I don't want people coming in there. It's not, you know, we don't get to multitask in the restroom. You will wait until I'm done, and then you can come in. But don't come in and try to do your hair while I'm in there. We're not, that's not how we work in our relationship, right? So I had the doors closed, but I didn't have them locked because my wife knows better than to come in there unless she's trying to pull a prank on me. And my daughter didn't know how to open doors. And I'm sitting there, and you know, I'm just in the middle thought. And as I'm in thought, I hear these ginormous thumping baby feet. Coming towards the door. And I said, oh. Good thing she doesn't know how to open the door. And then I, I hear her big baby body fall to the door. And then she starts scratching. Kid you not. Then I start hearing this. Dada? Dada? I was like, oh, Lord Jesus, no. Lord Jesus, no. Dada, 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 doosh, 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 doosh. And as she hits it, her big baby claw smacks the handle and the door flips wide open. I am in the most vulnerable position a person can be in in life. The thoughts in my mind left, my phone goes flying out of my hand, and I said, no! And this big bear, da-da, da-da, she starts to waddle towards me. Honey, honey, where are you? The baby keeps coming. I just put, kick her down, boom. (laughs) She's like, oh, da-da. She gets back up, da-da. Comes straight in and just hugs my leg. Just in there, you just, mmm. My wife comes running in the door, what happened? What, did you fall? What happened? And, and there I am, sitting on the throne with my daughter clenched to my leg, just hugging it away. My wife starts laughing like nobody's business. And then we begin to have a family meeting right there in the bathroom. I think about this moment, how vulnerable I was. A place where I, I just didn't, I, I need some, pro, I need to figure then process out what I'm doing here. But my daughter that time didn't care. She, she, she didn't mind what was happening in my life. She didn't, she didn't worry about what environment I was in. She didn't care that, that I was working things out literally in that moment. She just wanted to be near me. And I think about a God who sees us in our junk in the most vulnerable places that we can be in, where we say, God, let me control this situation. God, let me figure out. And God says, no, 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 no. You are my child. I'm coming all the way in. And not only will I embrace you while you are in the most vulnerable and weird position, I will also use you to change the world. So God comes after us like he comes to Solomon calls us into rest, begins to touch down, and then uses us for transformation. And like Solomon, we're a mixed bag of our goods and our failures, of our successes and our mistakes.
He pulls in close to our brokenness and into our flaws. He sees the experiences by which we did phenomenally and, 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 and in the places where we just, the gravitas of our actions were just painful. And he says again, I want you on my team. I want you to be used. So Solomon had wisdom. But more importantly, God wouldn't let Solomon go. <laughs>